Welcome to the Talks on Law MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now, for the interview. The legal profession is a stressful one, and that's in ordinary times. Today, we'll discuss one strategy, mindfulness, for reducing that stress and for making the legal profession a more sustainable one. Hello and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm Joel Cohen. Today we're joined remotely by Professor Natalie Martin of University of New Mexico Law School, who's written on this topic. Professor, welcome to Talks on Law. Thank you so much. It's nice to be here. Professor, I've heard law described as a career in many ways. One that stuck out to me was we're paid to take on the stress of our clients. Right. That's sort of true. I mean, we all have to deal with other people's problems all day, various types of problems. And that's one of the reasons why I think lawyers have an unusual degree of stress and anxiety in their lives. And today we're talking about, you know, one of the tools uh, that that lawyers can use to help fight that stress, mindfulness. I, I suppose before we get too into the weeds, how do you go about defining mindfulness within your practice? Great question. And I'm also glad you said it's one of the strategies, Joel, because this is one of the many things in the suite of wellness techniques that lawyers can use. And that also includes other things like getting a good night's sleep, exercising, eating well, and all of that. But when it comes to defining mindfulness, for me, that means finding a way to live in the present moment. And that involves, you know, not focusing on the past, not focusing on the future, and slowing life down enough so you can really get a good look at how you're spending the moments of your life. Well, why don't we take a moment, I suppose, to to be in this conversation? Should we have a couple of moments to to think of our breathing or, or center our attention? Yeah, so why don't we do that? We'll start with a small practice. And so first off, we're just going to slow down. And then just begin to notice the in-breath and the out-breath. And then you can begin to notice the space between the in-breath and the out-breath. We'll just keep going for a few more rounds of breath. And just keep in mind that you might think of something. And if you do, don't judge yourself. Just... Notice the breath, notice the thought, and then let the thought go like a cloud passing in the sky and just bring your attention right back to the breath. This is where these little sounds that we may be hearing in the background can actually help us with our practice because maybe we're focusing on the breath and then you hear a sound and you can just bring your attention back to the breath. So that really is the practice, is just coming back to the breath. And it can be that quick, just a a minute out of your day? Yeah. And we're going to talk about uh, a study done by lawyers um, that involved uh, meditating for six minutes a day. And most of the lawyers who work in private practice will know why that six minutes was chosen. That's a 0.1 of a billable hour. I was hoping you weren't going to say a billable increment, but... (laughs) But yeah, you can... Do these things throughout your day. But what I like to have the students do is, you know, a lot of people wear those athletic um, watches, like an Apple watch or something. And we just start hanging out in the beginning. And I have everybody look at what their pulse is doing. 
And then we do the practice. The one we just did was pretty short, but maybe I would do it for three or four minutes with them. And then I have them check back in. And you can really see that mind-body connection very vividly there because the practice will cause that heartbeat to start to go down, which is really healthy for the body. Well, I know personally, especially if if I'm working on something urgent or when I'm thinking on, on times when I was doing client work, I'm just tense. My brain is moving at a very high pace and then maybe I'm noticing Am I even breathing? Am I, am I holding my breath more than normal? And it's at those moments where I suppose uh, a practice like this in particular could help. Right. And one of the things I don't think we realize as attorneys is that when we're operating at that high anxiety level, the thinking is not as clear. So you know how people say, oh, I don't have time to meditate. I'm too busy. Uh, this is so ironic because doing a short practice like what we just did, perhaps a little bit longer, um, is really going to pay you back in spades because you'll be thinking much more clearly. And I find that after my morning practice, which is pretty short, sometimes it's 10 minutes, sometimes 15, I can sometimes get you know two or three hours worth of work done in about 45 minutes. For many of our, our viewers, it's not enough that it's good for us. <laughs> we are are often guilty as charged for being analytical or or data oriented or goal oriented so starting the conversation with this can not only make you healthier and happier but it, it can be a tool that could improve your effectiveness and efficiency for those out there who are of that mindset i hope that will help frame the conversation also to help frame it why don't we talk about why lawyers in particular need it and let's go to some of the data out there You've mentioned in some of your writing one particular study, but if there's a number of studies out there, where are we at base level? Why are lawyers uh, quite so stressed? Well, you know, I'm a law law professor, so uh, to me, you know, you have to start at the root, and I think the root is legal education. So although I, I think it's true that the law attracts a certain kind of person, that sort of becomes a stereotype and even a self fulfilling prophecy. You know, that you have to be a real gunner and have to be already very stressed out and type A uh, to go to law school. Uh, and so we don't really address it there as much as we could. We're starting to. But then it gets exacerbated when you get into the practice. And I think lawyers immediately feel like, oh, my gosh, I'm working all the time, but I still don't exactly know what I'm doing. So that's very stressful. Um, I also think people get into that first job and they think, oh, my God, this is a nightmare. I'm going to be miserable for the rest of my life. And as you well know, you know, most of us have three or four careers within the law, you know, various things. So those are some of the factors. Also, as you mentioned before, dealing with other people's problems all day, billable hours, you know, the culture is one of real, you know, kind of work hard, play hard which I think is where we get into what some of these problems are. And, um, you know, when we talked before, I mentioned addiction. I don't think that alcohol is the only one by any stretch of the imagination. I think we've got ego addiction, shopping addiction, you know, hopefully a little bit of addiction to exercise or something that's a little more beneficial. But the studies have primarily focused on alcohol and drug use and uh, the, the recent ABA study that was done in 2016 and then published in 2019 
uh, showed that about 20% of the profession has problematic drinking issues. So what, by that, they mean some binge drinking, um, alcoholism, uh, drinking that gets to the point that it's physically dangerous. Professor, as you were saying, the alcohol numbers were incredibly high, twice the national uh, statistics. And I can't imagine that a year in quarantine, a year plus, uh, has helped. I mean, the, the numbers on alcohol and substance abuse seem to be significantly up as a result. I'm afraid that's probably true. So I think these practices can be even more beneficial now. As someone who's not uh, 21 anymore, it's unfortunate that I have to recognize that aging is a reality and stress doesn't help. So even if it's not at the extremes of perhaps interfering with my ability to, to work in the profession or threatening my life, you know, we as lawyers want to achieve, we want to live long, healthy lives, and we don't want the stress to, to cut into that. So, uh, you know, I think... You know, that's another part of the equation. Anybody out there is vain and you care about what you look like, um, you know, drinking more than a couple of drinks uh, really dries out your skin. And, it, you know, you can tell like somebody's whole aura is not that good if you are drinking a lot. Now, I don't want to sound preachy either because I do drink. I am a lawyer after all, but all substances are going to interfere with the clarity a bit. And that's why people do it, right? Because they don't want to see, but it's better to face it. Why don't we talk about some of the stressors and perhaps what makes the legal profession a little bit unique. Um, What is it about law schools? Uh, You mentioned that law schools may take some of the blame. What are they doing wrong in terms of making us as a profession more high strung or perhaps less healthy? think there that we are not alone in the fact that you know there are stressful professions but we make the education difficult remember the socratic method and uh, you know cold calling and most of the people who are a bit older even than me think that that's necessary because they went through it and the whole idea is we have to really prepare students for the difficult situations that they're about to to face and for the difficult clients and we've got to make them think on their feet. And so the education is designed on some level to have that level of sort of adrenaline, anxiety producing elements to it. Now, I think people don't think as clearly when they're stressed out, as we mentioned. So I think that there are ways to prepare people without scaring them. So one thing you can do is sort of modify these practices a bit to be more modern. But I think we can also train the students in other ways. We can have the kinds of conversations we're having now, you know, where students really face up to the fact that life can be difficult. They think about uh, times when they have overcome difficulties in their lives. I mean, it's really interesting. I've gathered data for many years, you know, what makes Uh, the students feel most alive, and this is probably true of every person on earth, but basically overcoming something incredibly difficult makes them feel good, it makes them have resilience, it makes them feel strong. So not just teaching torts and contracts, but also teaching resilience skills and uh, teaching that you have to take care of yourself first, you know, like they say on an airplane, you know, put your own mask on first before assisting others. I'm not disagreeing with you, but just to to be the devil's advocate, you, you can 
of course change uh, the law school environment. You as a professor can actually immediately change it in your classroom, but changing the way the court works or the way a deposition works or cross-examination works, that's, that's another uh, level altogether and unlikely to change. So if you're preparing a lawyer for a system that is by nature confrontational and contentious, uh, isn't it in our interests to get some of that training in law school? I think we have to work on all levels to educate the courts and the firms and, you know, even places like the DA and the, uh, you know, AG's office, all of those places about these issues. Because if they don't address them, then they're just going to have a lot of expense and a lot of attrition. I just will tell you a very quick story about a student that I had who, so I'm a commercial lawyer, so I teach contracts and secured lending and bankruptcy and that sort of stuff. And this person worked at a huge law firm, and then he ended up at a big investment bank where he is now. And when he got there, this legal department literally said, you know, we're not here to help anyone here. We're just here to help ourselves, basically. And he thought it was terrible. So he just stayed himself. He just stayed calm. And did this upset some of the people in the department? I'm sure it did. When somebody called him, he called him back. If they emailed him, he emailed them back. He gave them immediate good services as an in-house lawyer. And now he's got more clients asking for him you know, more people within the organization than anyone else. And so you can't change it, but you can be yourself. I think the winning combination is having a little bit of compassion, having some vulnerability, and, you know, seeing other people as people, not just your clients, they will certainly appreciate that, uh, but also your colleagues, including junior colleagues. You know, from my limited professional career, particularly on the corporate side of the house, no one wants to work with uh, someone who's constantly a blowhard or, or confrontational or always looking for problems. And in fact, clients will avoid them as well. You know, you did mention a couple of things that lead to the perhaps higher stress nature of the job. One is the fact that we're in the customer service business and that it's no longer a nine to five type of thing for most lawyers. If a client has a, an issue or an emergency pop up, we're often expected to respond around the clock. Is this something that's new to the profession? Is this something that you see as sustainable? So it's not new at all. I also worked at a large law firm, but I think it's gotten much worse, especially with smartphones and, and things of that nature. And so often young attorneys have a big problem with boundaries, right? Like you, if you tell this partner that you're not going to be available after, say, seven o'clock at night, you're worried you're not going to get the good uh, cases and things of that nature. But I think we all have to set our own non-negotiables. We have to. Otherwise, we'll burn out and we won't be there. And I can't say this is always the case, but I have certainly seen a lot of good examples of people doing that, saying, this job is a very top priority. It's not a priority over my kids. I do have to cut things off at seven o'clock unless it's an absolute emergency. But I think that people respect other people that have boundaries. You see, so that's what I'm trying to, you know, explore. You're not going to want to stay at a job very long when people are calling you at one o'clock in the morning. From my experience, it was maybe a little more 
nuanced than that. So it may be that an Orthodox Jewish person would be able to take um, the Sabbath off, but then would be extra hardworking on, on Sunday, extra available on Sunday. Or, you know, if you had some type of event that you wanted to work around, well, then you would compromise in other ways. But it sounds like you have a vision for perhaps just a more healthy lifestyle overall. Right. I think that the things that we're talking about have to be part of the conversation in these firms. And you are being so correct and realistic in the fact that there's a lot of money to be made by working people extremely hard. If they ask for something, then you can get extra out of them later. That's only sustainable with a business model that assumes you're going to be replacing people relatively frequently. Or you can just say, well, we're just going to let people basically burn themselves out. And by the end of that career, they're not going to be very good. So you're talking about big law, and I think big law is super important. Um, But we can also think about everybody else. And there are a lot of lawyers in the country that are not in big law. You're working in medium firms, small firms, nonprofits. Most of the lawyers. Right. And, and I mean, if we have to, we can start there. You know, I'm not sure we can really change big law altogether. But I have also seen some really interesting firms taking on mindfulness classes and yoga and trying to help people lead a life that's going to be a little bit more sustainable. So, you know, there's a pretty big range of experiences. Let's transition into mindfulness specifically. What does mindfulness entail? It's really about slowing down, just like we talked about. And you can breathe like we did, or you can actually slow down and watch the thoughts. What do you mean by watching thoughts? So start with some breathing exercises like we did. And remember how I said, you know, a thought will arise. And when it does, acknowledge the thought and let it go. And then the second practice that I'm suggesting you're actually noticing what it is that you thought. So maybe you're sitting here thinking, wow, you know, this noise is really bothering me. Or, no, I wish I were a little better at X, Y, or Z, okay? So I'm sort of positioning my my conscience mind as a supervisor to what I'm thinking and and reviewing it in in real time? That is so perfect. Okay, so you're, it's like metacognition. You may have heard about this metacognition, thinking about thinking. So you're noting what you're thinking about. Now, you might be wondering, why do I want to do that? The reason is because we need to realize that we are not our thoughts. Sounds really obvious, right? But it's not. It's not that obvious. So if you pay attention to these thoughts, slow them down and pay attention to these thoughts, What you're going to see is that you are actually saying things to yourself that are hurting you. So a big part of, to me, the practice, I'm just going to call it the practice, doesn't have to be called mindfulness, is recognizing how we're getting in our own way. Give me an example. So a a good example would be that I am going to blame myself because a colleague, one of my colleagues just died, and he was like my best friend, so very sad. But I'm going to blame myself for not visiting him enough. And I'm going to judge myself. 
I'm going to tell myself that I'm not enough, okay? And if you don't pay attention to this, you don't even know it's happening, right? Maybe you wake up with a hangover, you know, and you say, I can't believe I had that last glass of wine. I'm such an idiot. Yeah. And you just keep saying these things to yourself and saying these things to yourself. And then if you can catch it, this is more like a little positive psychology than mindfulness. You can say, stop. I'm just going to stop doing that. It's not benefiting me. Go back to the breath. So that's another practice. But what it is, all mindfulness is, is just becoming more aware of the life that we're living. And that sounds really heavy. It doesn't have to be. You can use mindfulness to relieve stress or to get more done in less time, as we talked about, for efficiency. But at the end of the day, that clarity that you get is going to help with, you know, finding that sort of purpose, you know, finding out how to be the best you that you can be. And can you do this while while lawyering? Can you, you know, I'm reviewing a document, it's 50 pages. Is there a way to integrate that into the actual act of lawyering? So as I'm reviewing, can I take a stop every few moments and say, I'm reviewing this? I, I, I probably sound foolish, but. No, you don't. Um, so you don't, I know nobody uses paper anymore. But like a really cool thing, if you do use paper is let's say it's 50 pages that you just mark out at, at the 10 page increments with your pen or you could probably do it online as well. But no, you'll sit there and concentrate on the document for 10 pages and then you'll get up and do some lunges or take a walk around your office. You can also, every time the phone rings, take three breaths. I mean, you're asking me now about my favorite subject, which is sort of this integrated practice. You know, every time you touch a doorknob, you know, just take a really deep breath. I don't know what you call it. What are these protocols or are these, is this all part of the practice? It's just the practice. And right now we're talking about informal practices. And I think for most of the audience, the informal practices are a good place to start. Where you're really going to see the results though, are with the sitting, you know, for the six minutes to start. And then you can add a minute every couple days until you get up to about 15 minutes. And I please just ask people to try it for about a week you know, even if it's just the six minutes, and then just assess, you know, do I feel any different? Because I know if I get up early to get on a plane or something and don't do it, I can feel it. I can feel it all day, you know. And you can catch up later, but you don't, right? You're just off and running. So that's why I love these informal practices. A quick pause for those listening for CLE Credit. The code for this interview is... 90101. Again, that's 90101. And now back to the interview. One of the other things that you talk about with regard to mindfulness is shifting awareness. What do you mean by that? The way that you can start thinking about shifting the awareness is just to go back to focusing on the breath. And one of the things I do with the students is we inhale and then we count to one and you do that to, to the number four and then you start over. And um, I especially use this in clinic, you know, we have clients and that can be a little bit crazy for them. Very scared and want to do the right thing always. We all do, you know, we all want to do the right thing. Another shift in awareness is that 
you know, we all tend to be fairly self um, absorbed. And this is not unique to lawyers, by the way, but it is a problem because what we do is we assume that everybody's thinking this about us and that about us. And one of the main tenets of the practice is to really realize that nobody is thinking about us as much as we think they are. You know, I like to say if you knew how you know, uncommon it was for someone to think of you, you wouldn't worry that much about what they think of you, right? So we want to shift awareness um, and the practice helps with this to from self to other, you know, like what is it exactly that these other people in front of me are experiencing? And we can be like uh, anthropologists and watch our own thoughts, but we can also observe other people. So eventually, you can use your practice to pay attention to what others are experiencing and it will really make you feel better because helping somebody else is one of the greatest joys. And I do think that is something that lawyers build into their, the way they, they practice is, you know, I'm not doing this for me. I'm doing this for my client. I know, for example, when I run into some type of conflict with, I don't know, some, you know, someone in, in the real world. I'm much less assertive than I am when I'm representing a client, um, or, or I'm more likely to just say, okay, it doesn't matter. Um, but if it's to someone else, then I feel more empowered to do something. Exactly. That is so true. But again, I can't emphasize enough how much we can use small things throughout our day to keep us really calm and sane and keep the mind super clear. It also, your, your comment reminds me of another one of the tenets, and there's a million different um, sort of practices and, and backgrounds and, you know, different kinds of religions and the rest of it. But a very common tenet of mindfulness is this idea of non-attachment, and it's really hard for lawyers. But we have to realize that we did this seriously the best job we could on something, right? And then you want to, if possible, just slightly shift your awareness away from the result. So you want to do the work and then just realize, come to that point where, you know, you've done everything you can do, that's out of your hands. It just doesn't benefit us to agitate on it once it's out of our hands. You mentioned emotional intelligence. I suppose, you know, that's the ability to to understand and detect other people's emotions, your own emotions. How does that fit into the mindfulness practice? Well, the, I should say emotional intelligence is a byproduct of it. Okay. So it's easiest to start, I think, again, with yourself, you know, start at home. It's an inside job. Probably the biggest benefit that are one of the biggest benefits of mindfulness is you can actually regulate yourself so you can be aware of what you're thinking and feeling before you act on it. So I remember a lot of firm situations and even on the faculty, I see people blowing up and having these reactions that makes everybody else just pull away, right? So somebody has a blowout, what's gonna happen is whatever they want, they're not gonna get it, okay? because they didn't self-regulate. Now, if you can feel that anger, you know, kind of rising up, take a couple breaths. And then maybe if you're really like going crazy, you can write something down instead of speaking. But the idea is to create some space between the feeling and the reaction to it, 
right? We haven't talked at all about mind-body connection, but, but feelings arise in the body, okay? So this is why it's really important not to just be a head walking around, dragging a body around. We have to be connected in some way. So you use your mindfulness practice to get connected with the body, to realize what emotions are arising, and then to create space. Like a, a good example is, you know how we're all working all the time. Somebody sends you an email and the email has got a bad tone to it and there's other people copied on it. And of course you want to write a nasty gram back and you want to do it right now because you don't want that one that's out there to stand as the final word on the subject. I, I think it's better to wait. Take a minute. Yeah. Or a few minutes, or maybe don't respond at all. And sometimes that's the best, right? But that doesn't even get my attention. That was so low that it doesn't rise to something I feel like I need to respond to. But I say the next day, unless it's an absolute emergency. And so you start with yourself, then you can move on to, I wonder what this particular situation, what effect it's going to have on other people. And besides being making you happier, I mean, this will definitely cause you to achieve many goals. So let's say that opposition counsel says something that is overly aggressive. How would you describe that? I mean, some people are just bullies and there's a real desire to immediately put them in their place, right? But, you know, it's usually more effective to do what you're saying, to try to figure out where it's coming from, to ask questions, and but to call it what it is, to say that that was a little aggressive and we are trying to figure out why you said that. I'm thinking of a recent negotiation where one side was going on a tear and someone in the deal stood up their response was, are you backing out of the deal? Um, so kind of like a reframe. Absolutely perfect. Yeah. It's really hard to do, you know, when the other side's being aggressive. It's, it's, it's our nature, right, to just jump in and do the same thing. But it's like a keto. I don't know if you know a keto, but it's, it's the physical practice of the trying to turn your enemy into a friend. So rather than sort of attacking someone head on, you sort of you sidle up to them. I know about it because I think it has, um, the ABA actually has an Aikido for Lawyers uh, book. And I have a Yoga for Lawyers book from the ABA, but it's just, I think, a nice analogy to, you know, how to deal with difficult situations. People who are good at dealing with difficult situations are not blowhards. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the Talks on Law MCLE podcast.